Welcome to Sharkpedia, where your hosts, Megan and Amani, a couple of shark researchers that want to bring the science to you. We're creating a space to learn all things sharks and their relatives, answer your questions, and learn from the legends in the field. Get ready to jump in. Let's dive deep into the world of sharks. Okay, welcome back to Sharkpedia, everyone. We're so excited today. We have Dr. Yanis Pabias Dementio, and we are going to be talking about gray and black tip reef sharks. So thank you so much for being here today. We're so excited to have you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a pleasure to be here. Now, a lot of us in the shark community are very familiar with a lot of the acoustic telemetry work that you do with lots of different species of sharks. But for people that aren't familiar with your work, do you mind introducing yourself and telling us some of the work that you do? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. So I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor at Florida International University, and um, I uh, co-run the Predator Ecology and Conservation Lab. And uh, I broadly say that, you know, my students and I, we study the uh, physiological and behavioral ecology of marine predators. A large proportion of that is is elasmobranchs, but not not all. We work with teleos. We've even done work with with alligators. So it's, it's not only elasmobranchs, although that's the majority of it. Um, and also try to sort of take what we we learn from uh, behavioral ecology and physiological ecology, and then apply that to uh, to conservation to try and improve conservation efforts. So that's really kind of in a a broad umbrella of of, of what uh, my lab does. That's awesome. That's definitely a couple of my favorite things as well is behavior and physiology and putting those things together. They're, they're fascinating and also very closely linked. I think the, the link often goes missing, but uh, physiology and behavior kind of go hand in hand. Oh, that's so cool. Well, we're so excited to have you here. Uh, Mani, do you want to go ahead and give that summary for our listeners uh, so we can dive into this awesome study? Yeah, absolutely. So in this article, Papastumatu et al. attempt to link competitive interactions to predator distribution patterns between gray reef sharks, Carcharhinus amblyrhynchus, and blacktip reef sharks, Carcharhinus melanopterus. To do this, they use observations from more than 10 years of data collected through acoustic tags, human observation, and baited remote underwater vehicles, and then produced models. They found that sharks remained in small subhabitats with little movement out of their determined location, suggesting intraspecific competition. Their results implied distribution patterns and spatial separation is likely influenced by competition and that competitive advantage may largely depend on the habitat. Okay, so I guess one of our very first questions is at the beginning of the article, you discuss what's called a central place refuging. And I wondered if you could kind of go over that and explain what central place refuging is for our listeners and for us. Yeah, so um, central place refuging, and I actually regret using that term because I, I have switched to using central place foraging. So there's a little bit of a sort of um, back and forth in the literature about central place foraging, central place refuging, but really you don't see central place refuging used that much. So I, I would, if I was to write that now, switch that to, to central place foraging. But regardless, what that is, is essentially uh, animals that um, 
return to a central place, a home. So, for example, they'll have a region they live in and they'll make excursions uh, to uh, and from that area. So you can think of that uh, across a wide range of animals. You could have you know, ants leave a, a colony and they come back to the colony. You can think of that in reef fish where they'll have a shelter and they'll go out for the day and forage and then come back to the shelter. Birds, leaving seabirds, leaving a nest and going out and then coming back. Humans, we're central place foragers, right? We have we have a house and we, we uh, leave and always return to that central place. So in all these cases, <clears throat> the animal has a central place that it returns to. Oh, that's awesome. And sharks display that behavior too. They do. And we've never, we, we've been, um, we haven't used that terminology as much, even though this behavior was first discovered uh, actually with gray reef sharks back in the 70s when telemetry really first started. One of the first surprising results was that these animals showed this sort of very characteristic pattern where they would hang out in the same place during the day and they'd leave at night and they'd come back to the same place the next day. And so that was a surprise that really was kind of uh, showed you the power of telemetry because suddenly we could see the behaviors of these animals in a way that we couldn't do before that. So um, although the actual behavior has been around or we've known about it for decades, I think only more recently have we actually put that into the context that it's it's kind of similar to central place foraging in other animals like 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 birds for example yeah absolutely and i'm not as familiar with gray and black tip reef sharks do they not participate in longer migrations are they pre-residential sharks so they are quite a residential species both of them but it also depends on where you are um so even in palmyra for example some some uh, the, the black tips are probably very residential and the gray reefs are mostly residential, but I know there was at least one satellite tagged gray reef that swam like 150 uh, kilometers offshore. So they are capable the of doing, oh yeah, there are some that will do open ocean <laughs> swims uh, in some coastal areas, you know, not, not a, Palmyra is a small atoll, but in some more coastal areas, they might uh, be more mobile. I wouldn't say they're big sort of migrants uh, in the sense of, you know, classically everybody leaves and then comes back but they're certainly capable of doing long distance movements as are some black tip reef sharks. Uh, so again, um, you know, there, there's, uh, there's always variability within a population. And uh, although I'd say most of them are residential, some of them are not. Outliers are always messing up the data. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I think things have changed from our, you know, it's always nice to be able to have just sort of one general statement as this population does this, that this population does that. But as I think we're starting to see, that's just really not the case. So, you know, it's a proportion of the population does this, but some of them don't. <laughs> right. I mean, I would like to take this as continued evidence that sharks absolutely have personalities. Well, I think there is. There is, uh, you know, the, the definition of personality might vary a bit, but I think there is evidence that there's a, a lot of this sort of individuality that we see in other animal groups as well. And then you see the same thing with sharks and you can see sharks individuals of the same species that behave differently um and i think that's even uh, just just observing them can can uh, give you that insight absolutely and before we get too far into it i actually don't think we talked about where you were during this study so can you describe for our listeners this beautiful location that you were at to study black tip and gray reef sharks yeah, so this was at Palmyra Atoll, which is actually, it's in the central Pacific Ocean, but it's just above the equator. And it's uninhabited. It's part of the Line Island chain. So that's actually in the northern end. Um, it's about a thousand um, kilometers uh, south of Hawaii. 
So it really is. There's very, very little out there. It's uninhabited, but it is a U.S. federal wildlife refuge. So it's under the jurisdiction of, of U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So there is a research station there um, and ha that does have year round staff. Uh, it's, it's partially owned by the Nature Conservancy, TNC. So really TNC and Fish and Wildlife, you know, control and regulate the island. Um, so you never have more than about 10 or 20 people on the island at any one time. Um, but because it's very remote and it's been protected since 2001, I think. And so because of that, the protection and its remoteness, uh, it obviously has some very healthy reefs and uh, healthy, healthy shark populations. Is it is it hard to find a field location that has, I guess it would be considered so pristine or does not have as much kind of human impact on it? It, it is very difficult. And, and, you know, that part of the problem uh, we have, I'd say ecology in general is, you know, we, we want to talk about how uh, ecosystems function and how ecosystems have changed and what effect we've had. But we've never really, we've only started studying these ecosystems after we had an effect, right? It's not like we were doing these studies before human impacts became prevalent. So knowing what is baseline is very actually a difficult question to answer because we, we weren't studying when it was baseline. So these places are important. These places that are, I won't say they're pristine, but as close as you can get. So yeah. um, there are certain, you know, atolls, especially um, that are often, again, remote and protected and protected where that protection is actually enforced that are going to be, you know, again, as close as you could get. So Palmyra, Kingman are some examples. The Northwestern Hawaiian Islands uh, are some other examples. And that's why it's so important to, to work in these locations, because, again, it, it's kind of uh, an ecological baseline. It's not completely pristine. Again, the, the US military had a base on Palmyra in level two. So they're expecting there to be a huge battle. So they put, there was a lot of um, troops on the island and bunkers and stuff. The battle never really happened. So then the war ended and everybody just got up and left. <laughs> so all, all the bunkers are still there sinking into the sand. So it really is an incredible oh place. Walking wow. these isolated sandy beaches and there's a World War II bunker um, sinking into the uh, into the sand. So, Can we have yeah. like a second Sharkpedia episode, even though that's not shark related, where we talk about that? And I'll, I'll, I'll bring up a story about that later on. But, um, you know, but it also means that because when the military are there, they, they modify the lagoons, especially a lot. So right. you can't say the lagoons are a pristine system and you can actually yeah. you know, still see, obviously it's a long time since the war, but you can still see the effects of, of that modification. So I'll just say it's as probably as close as you're going to get to, to, uh, uh, ecological baseline, but but not truly pristine. Okay, my last question about this location is, you know, clearly it's very far out there and it's a very remote location. So how did you even get there? I imagine it's like quite a process to even get to this location. It's, yeah, so you can sail there. If you get permission from Fish and Wildlife, you have to do like, uh, you can sail there. If you, you have to have like a rat inspection by a Fish and Wildlife officer before your boat leaves and you can get permission. And you're allowed to go to the lagoons, but you're not allowed really onto the island. Um, so to work down there, you actually have to have, you know, scientific permits from Fish and Wildlife. Uh, but the way we would get there is there's a private plane that flies from Honolulu. So it's it's um, there is a runway that has been basically ground out of corals. There is now a runway. They can oh, land gosh. jets there. Um, it's all kind of visual landing. Um, and, you know, it's like a two and a half hour flight from from Honolulu to get down there. I, I hate flying and, and that's that is the one thing I did slight a lot about working in Palmyra was, was having to fly there and back. But uh, other than that, it's an incredible place. 
Talk about a rough landing. <laughs> well, well, the problem is it's it's in the intertropical convergence zone, which means that it's it rains a lot. It's a very very rainy place, and there's often storm systems, so it can be pretty bumpy. And the pilots have enough they have enough fuel that if they get to Palmyra and don't descend, they can then divert and go to Christmas Island, which is about a uh, hundred miles away, um, but has an actual true airport where they can land. The problem with Palmyra is it's just a runway. There's no landing crew. There's no anything like that. So <laughs> if they descend, they have to land. They don't have enough fuel to pull up and then go. So they have to make that choice. We're going to go for it or not go for it. So, um, oh my gosh, I, I, I hated flying there. But yeah, <laughs> some as someone like who it. hates flying, yeah. I can see that being absolutely <laughs> terrible. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um. So we, I don't believe we've actually had an article on the show yet that talks specifically about competition and competitive interactions. So could you just kind of introduce what competition is for our listeners and then more specifically the competition that you um, researched for this article? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, competition occurs anytime you have individuals either of the same species or different species using the same limiting resource. So it means it's not just that you use the same resource. If there's plenty of food, then it doesn't, it's not competition. So it has to be that food is limiting, meaning that because there's so many individuals that it's actually uh, reducing the, the intake of, of other individuals there. So anytime you have a limiting resource, you can potentially have competition. And um, I, I first got interested in competition um, from a, a paper I had published in 2006, which was on, uh, had used some old fishing data from, from the 60s and 70s around Hawaii and, uh, you know, looked at the sort of interspecific competition between, which is when you have competition between species of sharks. Um, but the problem with competition is it's really difficult to prove because you may, you know, th think that competition explains the patterns you're seeing, but proving it is another matter altogether. Um, and so Palmyra was really the place where my my interest in the, the role of competition really uh, increased a lot. And I feel like competition has been a neglected process in the sense that, for example, we uh, if you look at a lot of shark literature, everybody's really interested in the effects of predators and prey and, and what effect sharks may have on, on, on their prey. But often we neglect competition and even potentially does competition explain some of the other patterns that we may attribute to, to some other process. So I, I kind of feel it's a, it's a neglected um, process in some areas of ecology. I mean, great for you, right? There's lots to study. Yeah, it was. Uh, getting getting funding for it was a, was another question. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. Interesting questions, but but uh, you know, especially when you're trying to do that with sharks, because they're not they're in a lot of ways they're not ideal animals to be testing these uh, questions. But at the same time, I think they're really is really critical to to understand the role of of competition in in shaping like distribution patterns of shark species. Yeah. So. In a specific shark question, are gray reef sharks and black tip reef sharks, are they similar in size or is one larger than the other? No, gray reef sharks get larger. So okay. we, the largest gray reef I've ever caught was like 220 centimeters. Um, that's the, pretty big. Is, that's rare. That's very rare to get one that big. Normally they're in the 150, 160 range. I think the largest okay. black tip reef shark is in the 160 range. Again, that's rare. And in Palmyra, most of them are 120, 130 centimeters. So 
Grey reefs get larger. Morphologically, they're quite similar. Um, but grey reefs get larger, and they obviously have very different coloration patterns. Right. So w- when you went into this, did you think that size might influence their competitive interactions with each other, just with one being larger than the other? Yeah, I did. So one of the things, and you know, we get into this more, is is the role of dominance in, in competitive interactions. And with a lot of uh, animal dominance hierarchies, it tends to be size driven. So obviously, you know, the larger you are, the stronger you are, the the more likely you're going to be dominant over a smaller individual. But I will say that there's been um, some work with sharks on that topic to show that size isn't always um, a deciding factor. So uh, and that was work that was done um, after or, or during I was doing this project. So I, did, I wasn't aware of it at the time. But, the, you know, there can be quite complex um, processes behind dominance hierarchies in sharks. But in general, yes, I would expect the, the larger species to be dominant over the smaller ones. Yeah, that makes sense. And let's talk also about the two locations that you were studying at, Palmyra and Kingman Atolls. Um, can you describe a little bit about what mm-hmm. those locations were like and the differences between them and why you chose those locations? So Palmyra and Kingman are both part of, again, they're both under U.S. jurisdiction. Once you get south of Palmyra, it's, it's no longer. So you get to Christmas Island is the next island south, I believe. But, but basically, you're outside of, of U.S. jurisdiction. So Palmyra and Kingman are both the ones that are, that are covered by U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And um, the interesting thing about Kingman is very remote. So Kingman is actually only about, I think it's, it's 60 kilometers or 60 miles. I can't remember which. It's, it's 60 something north of, north of Palmyra. So it's not far. Um, but it has, the only land is one beach. So the only thing coming above uh, the waterline is a single beach of about 100 meters or so. So there's no base there. There's nobody living there. There's nowhere to live. There's no way to fly there. So that's the problem. Very, very rarely does anyone go to Kingman because you have to have a boat big enough to get there. So I was, um, Noah would run surveys of the Line Islands every few years with their really big vessels and they would go to Kingman. Um, I've only been once and that was when we had a really big um, vessel that had sailed to Palmyra and was willing to take us to, to Kingman and then and then back. So it's, it's a very, very difficult place to work. And you describe in your article the differences between the two locations in terms of the sharks there. You saw a difference in the presence of where you found which shark. Can you describe that? Yeah. So the 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 you know when I went to Kingman, it was not actually for part of this project. We actually went there to do some tagging of, of snapper actually. But whilst diving there, you know, I noticed that there were no black tips. There were just grey reef sharks. And obviously the habitat is very different uh, in the sense that you don't have any terrestrial environment. So that makes things, you know, it's not exactly the same as Palmyra, but I, you know, considered that to be sort of a useful control to look at how potentially the habitat use of gray reefs in an area where they share that habitat with black tips differs from an area where they're by themselves. Because again, that's one of the key things in most competition experiments or studies, what you would do to really prove competition exists is to experimentally remove one species and see how the other one responds. So if you look at like barnacle studies, you go and you basically just carve off one species of barnacle off the rock. Obviously, we can't do that with sharks. You know, I'm not going to go and, <laughs> and kill the population of grey reefs to see what the black tips no. do. But 
Kingman at least had some way to try and compare the two because naturally, for whatever reason, there's no black tips there. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, and then the other thing that you described in your paper is that you had these two locations, but then at each location there were three microhabitats. You had the lagoon, mm -hmm. the fore reef, and the back mm -hmm. reef. Can you kind of describe what those little microhabitats were at each location? Yeah, so that was just a broad classification. So there's obviously other habitat types there, and you could you could have subhabitat types within those classifications. But very simply, the fore reef is basically the outer ring of the atoll or the island, and it's where you have a steep slope. It's not a wall. It's not like um, some places in the Bahamas, for example, where you actually have walls. Um, but it's a steep slope, very high coral cover, but um, not very high relief. So it's it's flat corals and things like that um and it's clear water because it's basically right next to a pelagic ecosystem you know that boundary is very hard to, to delineate because you know you're, you're right on open ocean so that's the fore reef then the fore reef transitions to a back reef habitat which is now kind of flat constant depth um and it's not very deep you're talking about a few meters deep um it has now much greater vertical relief of coral and again it tends to be good visibility and then you have sand flats, which we didn't really mention, which are, as the name suggests, very shallow, sandy areas that often are exposed at low tide. And then finally, the lagoon, which can be quite deep. So the deepest lagoon in Palmyra is over 50 meters deep. Um, so they're not they're not shallow um, and they yeah. are they are pretty murky because that is kind of a muddy silt bottom. And so now you, you've got a very, very different environment where where these pretty murky lagoons. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really cool. <laughs> so the other thing that I was curious about that you described in your article is that um, different, you expected that the better competitor would inhabit the better ecosystem that had the better resources, but it's kind of hard to quantify the quality of the habitat. Can you kind of discuss like why you didn't include the quality of the habitat in your analysis yeah so you know when you're looking at competition you want to see for example how uh competing species or potentially competing species may use space and if you know maybe they use different areas and things like that but you can't ignore that also habitats are not all equal and so when you're looking and trying to explain these patterns you also want to have some understanding of the habitats they're using so habitat quality it's, it's a nice word but it's not easy to define so you could look at it in terms of the biomass of potential prey. And so we had that sort of data. And we know, for example, that the biomass of reef fish on the fore reefs is higher than in the back reef, which is higher than in the lagoons. So you might then say, okay, fore reefs are better habitat. But then you could look at other, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's easier to catch prey in those habitats. So prey being present and being able to catch them are two different things. And there's all manner of things that could uh, explain, you know, how uh, hard it is or easy it is to catch prey in habitat. So that made it very difficult for us to really try and say which habitat is better. I will say that definitely the habitat with the least amount of resources were the lagoons. I mean, there's a significant drop in because you don't have high coral cover, so you don't have good habitat for fish you don't have uh, high right. fish abundance but not saying that there's certainly plenty of fish in there but it just would seem like a lower quality habitat than perhaps some of the uh, other ones but again i'm making that assumption you know the lagoons don't look great to me 
but maybe to a maybe to a black at reef shark they they do look great so um it, it's hard to say is is there a way to measure the ease of catching prey in a habitat there there are ways you know and there's you know um certainly ways that have been done with uh smaller fish you know you can there, there's been experiments with tethering prey for example tethering urchins to different habitats and seeing where they're more likely to get eaten or how long it takes an animal to find food um it's just going to be it's just tricky to do um but i think it's something we do need to to start doing to really understand the importance of habitat because ultimately habitat's obviously critical when you're looking at the distribution of, of any animal not just a shark um but you really need to be able to understand what is good and what is bad about that habitat right so kind of kind of moving on into your methods um you acoustically tagged black tip reef sharks from 2004 to 2014 and gray reef sharks from 2010 to 2012. one of the questions i had was why was the period so much shorter um for gray reef sharks well good question and part of that was that this study was not initially started as a competition study uh, as I said, trying to get funds to go and working in Panama is very expensive. So trying to get all these funds to study competition in a very remote place between two shark species is just like, you know, not, not likely easy. to happen. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> what we started doing black dip reef shark work. And in fact, the first species that was getting studied at Palmyra were bonefish. And because there's big populations of bonefish, which is uh, recreationally an important fish in other areas so people spend a lot of money to go bonefish fishing on sand flats so that meant there was more funds because people you know generally if you're studying a species that is of a lot of recreational or commercial value there's more likely to be funding for it and so bonefish research was starting and it was seen that at palmyra a lot of the bonefish were getting eaten by black tips so that's why there was then an interest in black tip reef shark ecology and that's actually what i did my phd on so we started doing acoustic tagging of black tips um back in 2004 2005 and it was only later on that you know we got additional funds to start studying gray reefs when you know just based on our observations we start to get interested in in, in competition and then got the funds but that's why the two time periods are, are different uh, and also um why the gray reefs were studied for for a shorter period of time it's, it was just really down to logistics and and when you can get funding yeah. No, I thought that I was I was guessing that it was probably because the initial project wasn't specifically mm -hmm. including them. Um, but I think it's really interesting, especially for our listeners to hear that even when you have an idea for a project, it's constantly evolving, especially when you can get the funds to to do something. So I just I thought it was really interesting to to read that well, and, and think, then hear your perspective. Yeah, I think that'd be quite common, especially for projects that involve a lot of tags over long periods of time. Yeah. It's the, you may see a big paper that puts everything together but i'd say it's probably rare that the study started with the goal of that big paper you know it started off with smaller projects that then built itself up because again funding turning up and say can i have a massive amount of money to do all this with all these species is less likely to happen than than you know something driving an initial interest with with one species and, and then it kind of grows right or if you gain collaborators too like i've had that where I gain collaborators and the more collaborators you get, the bigger the questions become, then the bigger the project becomes. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, uh, you know, this, this project was, I had multiple collaborators and, and actually bring to that point, 
for the acoustic tracking, it was based on a receiver array, right? You know, for acoustic telemetry, you have to have receivers that are detecting these tags. And so initially, when it was just us working there, we only had enough receivers to put in the lagoons. Um, but then there was other telemetry projects. There was a group from the American Museum of Natural History who were tagging turtles. Uh, there was another group tagging reef fish. Then we got some gray reef monies. There was somebody tracking Napoleon wrasse. And so everybody started contributing receivers. And so our array went from 10 receivers to nearly 70. Uh, uh, and so that's you know, we just doing the lagoons to covering the whole atoll. So that, that um, uh, made a big difference. Yeah, that's something that we've talked about on our podcast before as well with Jasmine Graham, because she was studying sawfish migrations around around Florida, and all these collaborators contributed receivers all around the entire perimeter of Florida, because it wasn't possible for one team to fund and maintain an entire array around an entire state. So having that collaboration really is key. Yeah, that's that's the beauty of you know telemetry and. and... Uh, obviously, there's much better coordination in Florida, um, whereas Palmyra is just one atoll. And so it, was, it yeah. was, but but even within the atoll, I mean, that's what happened. We, we ended up with like four or five different institutions contributing receivers and everybody sharing a, a master database and everybody benefited from that. So on top of just the acoustic tags that you fitted uh, the black tips and the gray reef sharks with, you also fitted some of them with V16PT sensors, which recorded depth. Um, and a few gray reef sharks and one black tip with DVL 400 video camera um, to kind of observe these competitive interactions. I'm just curious, you know, how these three methods of collecting data really allowed you to kind of tie all of the interesting things together um, into your results and then in, in your discussion in the paper. Yeah, I mean, the, the so the different technologies, they, they may measure similar things, but they do them over different uh spatial and temporal scales so telemetry for example we you know the tags we were using had battery lives of years sometimes four years um and we were able to simultaneously track movements of these animals over that time period so we put out depth sensors because obviously these animals live in a three-dimensional environment so if you're looking at uh resource partitioning, you're not just looking at horizontal spaces, but you're looking at vertical uh, as well. So knowing the depths they use is really important. So we started putting out these, these depth sensing um, tags. Uh, we were including temperature sensors because this goes back to the physiology. You know, we were also interested in, in kind of what is driving um, these behaviors that we might see with these animals. And the, these are ectotherms. So obviously temperature is important. Um, and so we wanted to monitor their body temperatures as well. Um, but the problem with telemetry is that the sampling rate, the sort of temporal resolution is poor. So for example, these tags are sending out a signal every two to three minutes. So you get one data point every two to three minutes. Plus, if you're not, if your shark's not around a receiver, then you get no data. So you get these, you know, kind of gaps in the data set. So for that reason, we also started using biologging. And the difference is that biologging are tags that go on the animal, but they're not transmitting that data. So you have to get the logger back to um, get the data. So those are things we attach the dorsal fin, they have a time release mechanism, they pop off, they float to the surface, and then we have to go and find them again. Um, they also own- Needle in a haystack. <laughs> it is, I mean, we, we, have, we, we had kind of worked methods to recover them, uh, you know, so we had a variety of like satellite tags on the packages so we could then go and find them. 
um, but we lost a few. Um, but they are measuring at very high resolution. So, you know, these sensors were measuring depth. They were also measuring things like speed and acceleration. So we could look at behavior. And some of those measurements were 20 times a second. So you get these massive data sets, but only over yeah. short periods of time. So a few days versus telemetry, where you have much coarser data, but over much longer time periods. Um, and then we also use these video cameras because, again, there's nothing that quite beats just seeing what's going on. You know, you can you can try and infer all you want when you have depth data and horizontal space use, but uh, seeing what the shark sees just reveals a lot. So um, as you can imagine, camera tags are not cheap. And especially back then, they weren't common. They're a lot more common now. Uh, but we, we put those out in, in 2013, I think. Um, but that's why we wanted to see, you know, do these sharks encounter each other in the wild? Uh, and if so, where uh, and when? Out of curiosity, how many of those bioluggers did you get back or recover? I remember we lost um, two. Yeah, and we lost them because the, the time release mechanisms failed. So it wasn't because we, we couldn't get them back. In some cases, for example, had the animal swum 100 miles offshore, we wouldn't be able to get it back. Um, but we we lost two. One of them, I remember, it didn't come off when we thought it was going to. And so we thought it had been lost. And then suddenly at sunset, the day before we're leaving, the satellite tag starts reporting from the other side of the atoll. Uh, and we had 30 minutes because there's very strict rules that the boat, that there's one offshore boat. Obviously, it's a very remote place. You have to be really careful safety-wise. So, for example, you cannot have the boat offshore in the dark. So there's very strict rules of when it has to be back inside the lagoon. And we basically had a 30-minute window to, to run out, try and find it, and, and get it back and get back in. And we did. We did. But it was, That's it was amazing. Nice. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That is awesome. <laughs> Sometimes I wish people could see the faces that Megan and I make when we do these <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> you should see the face when we get these tags back, especially that one, because that was like, I think the total value at the time would have been $8,000, $10,000 of that tag. Wow. And we had written it off because it hadn't, it was supposed to have popped off in four days and it hadn't. So we're just like, oh, we lost it. And then suddenly, in fact, I was in the shower because the day had ended. And so we'd finished the day and then somebody just yelled that we got an email, we got a hit from the spot tag. And so we just grabbed everything and ran out and, and got it. So it was pretty, pretty ecstatic. Oh my gosh. All that adrenaline. Yeah. 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 We had another person on the podcast earlier that had a similar story of going out and just barely recovering one of those tags. And I'd love to be a fly on the wall watching that. Yeah, it's it's a, a stressful series of days until you oh, get yeah. it back and download it. Yeah, it seems like an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> it is. I love the data, but there's several steps to it, and and each one's very stressful. <laughs> so until you get to the bit, and it's not even just recovering it; it's recovering it and making sure the tag worked. Because especially back in the day when when there were you know weren't many being produced, they would fail quite often. So you know you'd be all excited. I got my tag back and then download it and it hadn't turned on. Oh my so gosh. Stuff like that happens. So there's several steps before you can celebrate. Yeah, no kidding. There's so much that goes into getting that crucial data. And then once you have that crucial data, you've got to analyze it. So as a PhD student that is early on in my career and starting to figure out a lot of that analysis, um, I was wondering if as, in as plain language as possible as you can, can you describe the EDMC analysis that you did and why did you choose that modeling system? 
Yeah, so I'll start off by saying I am not someone who's very good at doing at quantitative skills. I'm, I'm good at seeing what's, what uh, tools are out there, statistical tools, and, and thankfully have great colleagues who can do it. But I, I am myself not very good at it. <laughs> so, but I had seen a, a study that had actually used this tool, which is, uh, I'm trying to remember the specific definition, but it's basically what's called a Markov chain, um, which essentially takes into account that the probability that you're in a certain state now depends on what you were doing on the previous time step. So this is an issue with time series data, okay? Time series data, you're taking something at regular intervals. And so for a lot of the standard statistics we use, um, that creates a problem. So for example, one of the one of the assumptions with, with most statistics is that data is independent, um, which if you imagine you're, let's say, looking at diving data from an animal, uh, if that animal happens to be deep at one time point, it's more likely to be deep at the next time point because it was just deep a few seconds ago, or a few minutes ago. So that data is not independent of each other. And so it's a, that's a problem with movement data as well, because again, movement data is a series of, of uh, time steps at which you're measuring where that animal is. So a Markov chain takes into account that the probability that you're in a certain state will, to a certain degree, depend on what you were doing the previous state. And so with this method, it essentially breaks down the probability of animals uh, transiting from one habitat to another or staying within another habitat. So for example, if you're on a back reef, what's the probability that you're going to go to the fore reef or go to the lagoons or just stay in the back reef? Um, and the other thing that's nice about it is because it relies on these sort of multiple sort of randomizations and iterations that, um, you know, we, we tagged a total of like 40 gray reefs and, and 40 black tips, something along those lines, which is not bad sample size. But when you think about, we know that there's about 9,000 gray reefs at the, at the atoll. We're tagging a very small proportion of the population. And so you're trying to make inferences about what the population does based on a very small number of tagged animals. So when you have these multiple iterations like that, that kind of tries to statistically at least get past that issue. So it makes it more of a um, population or attempts to make it more of a population relevant number. So that's why essentially why we thought it'd be a good tool to look at uh, the probability of these different species either staying within a certain habitat or, or moving between habitats. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the other thing that you mentioned in your article is that you didn't do the analysis based on sex or size. And so I was wondering if you could explain why you decided not to group them based on their sex or size. I'm trying to remember. I think we did some preliminary analysis and um, didn't find a big difference. Uh, when it came to size, it was probably more of an issue that our size range of tagged animals wasn't very large you know, just because of what we were catching, there wasn't a huge range of size. So yes, you know, it, it's always good to look at differences between the sexes or within the size range. Uh, but obviously, each time you do that, you're making your sample size smaller and smaller. And so for this purpose, we just didn't really have the sample size to compare species and sex and size uh, at the same time. Now, again, looking at the data, there, there wasn't huge, there was some differences between the movements of the sexes for both species. And we definitely see examples of sexual segregation uh, as well. So, for example, on the back reefs, we only were catching female black reef sharks, never males. 
oh, in the lagoons, even though that's like less than a kilometer away, you get both males and females. So you do get sexual segregation, um, but that also wasn't really our question for this for this study. Sure, that makes sense. So one of the other kind of methods that you talk about is IFD. Um, or ideal free distribution, which I wanted to define for our listeners um, because I also did not know what this is. Um, and from my understanding, it basically says that all things equal between two competitors, including their abilities, knowledge of the habitat, and freedom to move throughout that habitat, um, that those individuals will distribute themselves proportionally. Um, and you say that this is a useful framework, even though it's rarely correct in um, habitats. And I'm kind of curious why it's useful um even though it is rarely something that we see yeah so i'll start off by saying one of the things i i regret you know with when i first started was um neglecting sort of classic ecology which i think is you know a, a mistake a lot of us make for example you you let's say you're working with sharks and you read shark papers to inform your study or your papers and obviously sharks are a predator uh, and they're not, you know, unique in that sense. And so um, I regret not having utilized more classic ecology when trying to sort of understand uh, my study system. So I've tried to rectify that over the last few years. And so because of that, I, I try to include a lot of theoretical biology to um, which makes predictions about what you might expect to see. And I think it's particularly important for sharks where you can't do any experimental manipulation. As I said, you can't go and remove a competitor and see what the other one does but if you have a theoretical framework and you have predictions then you can compare what you actually see to what these models predict and obviously a model never explains something just because your predictions are similar to what the model says doesn't mean that the model has explained what's going on but you are now more confident that what you're seeing is is due to these factors so it improves your your confidence and it gives you an ability to to predict what you might see so the ideal free distribution is um, it doesn't have to be about different species. It's just about it could be individuals of the same species. And it's just saying that, again, if you have two habitats of differing quality and um, obviously as individuals go to a particular habitat, they'll start to eat the food there. So the number of individuals on a habitat patch goes up, there's less and less food available. So at some point, it's beneficial for the next individuals to go to a poorer habitat where there's less food, but there's also less individuals. And so what you would end up with is if you compare the distribution is the number of individuals would be proportional to the quality of, of the patch. So if you have twice as much food in one patch, you should have twice as many uh, individuals. And it comes with those assumptions that you said. It, it means that the individual, there's no uh, interference competition, which means you don't have individuals sort of preventing another individual from eating there. You don't have territoriality. Um, everybody's free to move wherever they want. And they also have perfect knowledge of where these habitat patches are. So they know where they are and they're making this choice to go to, to one or the other. And so, yes, in many cases, those assumptions are going to be violated. But it's important as a framework because it lets you know that if what is, you know, the most important thing in explaining these distributions is simply abundance of resources like food, then this is what it should look like. And if it doesn't, then you can start to say, okay, there's a reason it's not looking like this. Why would that be? And then you can start to uh, try to figure out what is causing the distribution to differ from what you might expect. 
Now, the models we were using there, or the framework, was from more advanced ideal free distribution models that um, then considered that you would have individuals competing where some individuals are superior competitors to the others. And so those sort of papers that I took that framework from, let me be clear, I, I didn't do these. I'm, I'm not a theoretical biologist. I just, <laughs> these are the predictions from these papers. Um, I could then uh, uh, sort of relate that to what we had in Palmyra in terms of what we might expect to see when we have two species, one of which we may assume is a superior competitor over the other. I find all of the, I too am very bad at any sort of mathy thing. However, I find it really interesting and I find the amount of models that we have available to us to kind of help us quantify all of our data to be really, really interesting. And I, I don't know, I like talking about it because I feel like modeling is something that is a lot harder to discuss in a way that people who have no idea what the model does will understand. Um, so I, yeah, thank you for kind of explaining that in the best way. No, that I, I'm the same. I'm, I'm not good at math. Uh, and I always, I ne I didn't used to see the point in a lot of theoretical biology because I was just like, well, that's not realistic, but that's not, <laughs> that's not the point at all. You know, it, the point yeah. is that it gives you a framework of predictions. And if it doesn't match that framework and you can start to try to understand why it doesn't. And again, I think it's particularly important when you have these animals that you can't do experimental manipulation. So if you want, and competition is a great example of this. So for example, you look at your movements of two species and you say, oh, they use different areas. They're competing. It's, it's, it's you know, they're, they're partitioning resources because of competition. Well, that could be one explanation or it could have nothing to do with that. It could just be that one likes this habitat and another one likes this habitat. So if you have theoretical predictions and then you compare it to what you see, again, one still doesn't explain the other. The model will never tell you what is going on but it does give you more confidence and another thing i'll say is that the the effects of competition are far more complicated than just saying they will partition space you know one species uses this area one species uses that area because that neglects the fact that you're also talking about habitats of different qualities you don't know how they compete with each other so one of the things that really opened my eyes with reading those theoretical biology papers is that the predictions will differ based on how they compete is one species dominant over the other is one quicker than the other is one better at catching prey and so you may have a situation where the model predicts yes these two species will use completely different spaces or some predictions will say one species uses all habitats and the other one only uses one or you may even have a situation where competing species use all the same habitats so it's it's much more complicated than just saying they should partition spaces. And so I think uh, including that complexity helps you understand, you know, what is driving those patterns you see. Yeah, I appreciate the transparency on that as well, because, yeah, modeling is something I'm just starting to get into. And it's definitely not my strong suit. And having that frame for, framework, but having your intuition to interpret it is helpful. And yeah, I just appreciate your transparency on that in general oh yeah i'm i'm i'm, I'm not not good at math <laughs> hide that <laughs> okay and then i think uh one of the last methods questions that we have before we get into the conclusion of this awesome study that you did is um that you use something called bruvs b-r-u-v-s and i actually can't remember what that stands for what does that stand for 
integrated remote underwater. And I actually forget if the V is for video or viewing. It's vehicles. One of, not, is it vehicles? No, not vehicles. It's, it's either video oh. or, or viewing. And I can't remember which. Hey, Sharkies. Fact check. It's video. So that whole acronym is Baited Remote Underwater Video, also known as BRUBS. And it's basically, uh, it's become a very popular tool because it's, it's, they're cheap to make. I mean, it's basically a construct with a GoPro and bait and you put it in your area and you count how many sharks you see. So it's a, it's a really good way to look at, especially sort of relative differences in abundance and distribution uh, between different habitats. Uh, and it's again, it's, it's low cost compared to some other methods and, and quick and, and effective. And in your article, you said that you only use brubs in Kingman, right? You only used it in one location? No, Palmyra. Oh, in Palmyra. Okay, so why did yeah. you only do it in Palmyra, not Kingman? Because we only went to Kingman once, and it was for two days. And uh, brubs had been, I, I think uh, Australian researchers were doing brubs. They had started using them, but it wasn't a common tool at that point. So we didn't start using them in Palmyra until I think the first time we used it was 2014. Um, so it just wasn't on our radar as a tool in, in, in 2009 when we went to, or 2008 when we went to Kingman. Okay. And then with all of those results and all of the telemetry that you did, um, the results that suggested that the competitive advantages between species was likely to be habitat specific and not caused by one species having a constant mm -hmm. advantage over the other. Can you kind of describe, um, that conclusion that you made? Yeah, so first of all, we found that um, gray reefs, you find really just on the four reefs. They go into the back reefs a little bit, but very rarely into the lagoons. Black tips are most abundant in the lagoons uh, and on the back reefs. And you do find them on the four reefs, but less so. So you had this sort of clear sort of uh, pattern of uh, some overlap, but also differences in what are the important habitats to these two species. There's also a depth distribution as well. So for example, on the four reefs, black tips, when they were there, they stay shallow, whereas gray reefs would be deeper. So there does appear to be this sort of partitioning between the two. And then when we compared that to Kingman, we found that similarly, gray reefs prefer four reefs, but you see more of them in the back reefs and the lagoons than you would in, in Palmyra. So that does suggest that to a certain extent, at least, the black tips might be limiting the expansion of gray reefs into the lagoons in, um, in Palmyra, where you very rarely see them. And we also, we also built our own simulation models. Again, very, very simple, what are called individual-based models, which you can even think of it as you have lots of little agents that we'll call them that, are, that represent our sharks. And we can put different rules in there and different habitats and our agents as these sharks are moving around, they're losing energy. If they catch prey, they get energy, but they're competing in different ways with different species. And so you can make, again, it's a very abstract model. It's not meant to be realistic, but you can change the rules of the model. And what we found was that the easiest way for there to be separation in terms of space use between these two species. So gray reefs use one area, black tips use another area, kind of like what we see it for real, is if one species has a competitive advantage in a certain habitat, but not necessarily another. So when you look at most studies of dominance, they just say, oh, this species is dominant over that one. What this model gave us the idea of was, well, maybe this species has an advantage in this habitat, but not necessarily in this habitat. 
And at least theoretically, with our simulations, that very quickly led to them using different space. And so, for example, gray reefs are bigger. And we, we have evidence that they are dominant over black tips, which will give them an advantage in places like the fore reefs and the back reefs. One of the things I noticed when you see in the lagoons, you know when you see a gray reef in the lagoon because it stands out like a sore thumb because they'll be swimming over the sand and it just looks like this black shape moving over the sand. A black tip is nicely camouflaged because they've got golden colored skin. So when they're going over the sand, they're much harder to see. And so I don't know if that explains it but to me it suggests that perhaps the black tips have an advantage in those murky sandy areas because of their coloration patterns and they outcompete gray reefs in those habitats so um again we can't know for sure we did a follow-up study which we published uh last year where we compared the dominance interactions of black tips and gray reefs between the back reefs and the fore reefs and actually showed that in both cases gray reefs had the advantage, but the advantage is much less on a back reef than it is on the fore reef. So the relationship doesn't change, but the magnitude of the relationship does. We weren't able to compare it in, in lagoons. You just don't see any gray reefs there. So you can't really compare it to anything. Um, so again, we can't say for sure what is driving this. Clearly, habitat by itself plays a really important role because in Kingman, gray reefs still prefer fore reefs. So it's not like they're using you know lagoons equally to forests they're not so obviously the habitat itself uh explains a lot of the distribution patterns but i think competition is adding on top of that and at least limiting um where you see gray reefs so again in palmyra you don't see them in the lagoons where you have have black tips and and we believe it's because they're getting out competed out of those areas now what the black tips would do if there's no gray reefs, we don't know. We don't have anywhere to compare it. My guess is that you'd see more of them on the fore reef and perhaps a bit deeper if there's no gray reefs there. Were these the results that you were expecting when you started this? Did you um, have kind of, was your hypothesis, I guess, similar to what your results showed? It was, it was to a certain extent, but there was more overlap than we expected. So, for example, I didn't expect there to be any black tips on the fore reefs at all, you know, but when we did the bruvs especially, we could see that they were there. So it's not that they have this true spatial separation. What you kind of see is you have black tips across almost all habitat types, but they prefer certain ones. And the gray reefs are much more restricted. So you really only find them on four reefs, whereas you find black tips on lagoons, back reef, and four reef, which, interestingly enough, those classic uh, ideal free distribution models predict that if you have two species and one is dominant over the other, you might find the dominant species in the good habitat and the subordinate species across all habitats. So not just simple separation. So that was kind of um, surprising. But the simulation models, I think, was the most intriguing thing to me because I hadn't I hadn't thought of it that way up until then. Again, it's just to show you the value of the simulation models. It doesn't explain anything. It's very simplistic. You know, you're not going to look at it and like, oh, you know, you, you left out all these details. I mean, yeah, that's not the point. It's not meant to be representing uh, the Palmyra system exactly. But through those results, I started to look at how dominance might play a role in a different way and again before that i had always assumed what matters is one species is dominant over the other and after those simulations i started to think well no 
this could vary, this relationship could vary based on the habitat they're in. And so that's how I'm really trying to now apply that to, to other places and see the importance of these sort of habitat specific advantages for one species over another. Sure. And for our listeners that aren't ecologists like we are, can you kind of explain to our listeners why it's important to understand why one species might be a better competitor over another species? Um, why, why is it important to understand in terms of ecology and the bigger picture, the competition between two species? Well, I mean, it's important because understanding what drives distribution, you know, why do you find one species both at large spatial scales. So for example, why is there no black tips at Kingman Reef? And then at smaller spatial scales, why is there no gray reefs in the lagoons? Because that also lets us predict what happens if one species is removed and the other one isn't, which is a real issue. So I mean, especially when you look at sharks, let's say, um, you do get, uh, you know, not in Palmyra because there's, you know, there's enforcement there, but in other places there will be illegal fishing and, or, or legal fishing. And fishing is also driven by where uh, it's easier to fish. So, for example, in a lot of places, it may be, especially in some of these Pacific atolls, it may be harder to get into lagoons to fish than it is on the outer four reefs. Or it may be driven by the fact that they're targeting certain species for whatever reason. And so you may not have species being targeted equally, even in the same place. So, for example, maybe gray reefs are going to be caught more easily than black tips. Well, then what happens to the black tip population um, if the gray reefs are, are removed? Are they going to, now that that competitor has gone, are they going to change their, their distribution patterns? So I think from, from a conservation standpoint, understanding the role of competition in the distribution patterns we see um, is, is really important. Another thing I'll add is, you know, uh, another, when I first started, I st first started going to Palmyra in 2005, and the only, you know, the major species are black tips and gray reefs. You do see white tips, you see some hammerheads, um, tiger every now and again, but those are the main species. Suddenly in 2010, somebody saw a Pacific lemon shark on the sand, on the sand flats. And then um, by 2011, 2012, I had seen on every trip, I started to see Pacific lemons on no the back. No kidding. So they had, I don't know when they arrived, but we definitely, and there was a lot of people in the water. They were not seen until 2010. Um, and so now you have a new species. And I don't know whether the population will establish. Maybe it's just, you know, a few stragglers and it'll die off. But if it does, and you suddenly have a lemon shark population, and lemon sharks, specific lemon sharks, have used very similar habitats to black tip reef sharks because they use these um, very shallow sand flat areas as nursery areas, just like black tips do. Right. So you could then have a big black tip competitor um, suddenly appearing at the island. Um, and what does that mean for um, the black tip reef shark population? So these are just some examples of, of the importance of understanding the, the role of competition. Yeah. And for non-ecologists that are listening to this as well, it's not just even the competition between those two species, but sharks are often regulating entire ecosystems by regulating the fish populations beneath them. And so oftentimes it's not just about saving one shark species or another, it's about controlling and ensuring that the, the ecosystem can continue to maintain. So that's just also an aside to give our listeners some perspective. And I'm curious, what were some of the limitations you had with this study? Is there anything that you would do differently if you were able to go back and start doing this again? 
uh, yes, I would. I mean, um, for one thing, I really wish we could have acoustically tagged some uh, gray reefs at Kingman. So at the time, we, we were doing a snapper tagging project. So we actually were acoustically tagging twin spot snapper, which is actually one of the more, uh, another really important predator. It's not just sharks. So there's, uh, you know, twin spot or bohar snapper, as they're called, you know, is, a, is an important predator. But I wish we had tagged gray reefs at Kingman to really look at connectivity between Palmyra uh, and Kingman. Um, I, I would say I'm not sure how much I would change after it, rather than that, because a lot of that was kind of driven with what we were able, you know, it, it wasn't the case of we could have done things differently. Those were the resources we had at the time and, and what we were able to do. Um, so I wouldn't even really have had the option of doing it um, differently. Uh, I do wish we tagged at Kingman and there's certainly plenty of follow-up work I would love to do. I don't know if it'll ever happen, um, but so, you know, it, it, it as with mo most uh, research opened up many questions that um, many more questions that, you know, arose because of that initial work. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like every scientist, right? We start a project and we start, we finish the project with a lot more questions than we started with. Yeah, it never ends. It never ends. At some point, at some point, you just have to pull the plug. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm done. But but otherwise, I mean, it won't ever end. There's never going to be a shortage of questions. There'll never be uh, a shortage of questions. Yeah, I think we're all certainly happy for that. Um, is there anything else that we haven't gone over about your paper that we should go over before we conclude? No, I think I think we went over the main point. You know, actually, I'll say one last thing, and that was the importance of using different tools because initially we were just using telemetry. And in fact, when we um, looked at the telemetry data, black tips never go into the fore reefs. They were just using back reefs and lagoons. And then when we when we would fish for them, you could never catch a black tip on the fore reefs because the gray reefs would outcompete them for bait. So if a black tip turns up, the gray reef would just push them out of the way. So if you look at the fishing data, it would say there's no there's no black tips on the fore reefs because you catch zero. But it's not because there's none there; it's because we couldn't catch them. But then when we used the bruvs, we saw that there was plenty of black tips on the fore reefs. So the reason the telemetry showed that black tips weren't going to the fore is because we were tagging these sharks in the back reefs and the lagoons and they don't move to the fore reef. That was what was interesting is that even over these small spatial scales, there's very little mixing. So black tips in the back reef do not move to the lagoon. Black tips in the lagoon do not move to the back reef and black tips on the back reef don't go to the fore reef. So if you just relied on the telemetry, you would erroneously say black tips don't use fore reef habitats. But the bruvs show that they do. We just weren't tagging those individuals. So so we missed it. So always remember, I think, also that when you, especially with telemetry, it's biased towards where you tagged your animals. And you tend to tag right. them where they're easy to find. So uh, and even over small spatial scales, you may have individuals of the same species that do not mix. You know, and it could just be in Palmyra. It's less than a kilometer difference. And lagoons, the back reef is less than a kilometer. And yet those individuals almost never uh, mixed. Yeah, why do you think that is? Maybe you already said it earlier on, but that was actually um, one of my questions. Like, do they pick a spot and then they're happy there? Or, you know, do they 
wait until they get bigger and then when they're bigger they go somewhere else so they do definitely there's ontogenetic shifts so the the very small black tips use the sand flats as i said you, you see the pups like you know black tips this big are up by the beach on uh you know where there's uh, it's very very shallow water so they definitely is an ontogenetic uh, shift between the species that sort of separation of adult populations um i think it also comes down to interspecific competition and also, I, I won't get into it in much detail. It's another, it's another topic. Our follow-up studies show that these sharks form social groups. So they actually form groups where they uh, form social bonds with each other. They spend time with each other. And they form bonds with other individuals that use the same area. So in a lot of ways, to me, uh, it was, it's very similar to what you see with seabird colonies. So if you look at seabird colonies, for example, they separate sp spatially. So if you look at Britain, you have a, a seabird colony here. Those birds go out to forage, they come back. There's another colony down the coast, but those two populations don't mix. They almost like, uh, and the reason for that, or what, the, what they think is, is competition between the two the colonies, but also that you're getting social interactions between individuals within the colony, where they're actually sharing information. So birds within a colony are uh, inadvertently showing information on where prey is located. And, and those two factors are causing this separation. So for the gray reefs, at least, I think that's actually very similar because you see that same thing with the gray reefs. If you go around the four reefs, you have a group on the southwest only hangs out in the southwest, a group on the north, only in the north, a group on the east, only the east. And we're talking a kilometer or two. I mean, a shark could swim around Palmyra in a day if it wanted to. So it's not a distance thing. Um, but I believe it's kind of similar forces to what you might see at larger scales with with uh, seabird colonies. But well, I may be wrong. That's so cool. That's amazing. We definitely have to have you back on just to talk and follow yes. up. With yeah, that. that's, a, that's a, another. We could do a whole a whole uh, hour on that easily. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're unfortunately starting to run out of time. But before we leave you, we want to get to our favorite part of the podcast, which is field stories. And it sounds like you might have a pretty good one. I mean, I have I have I have many field stories, you know, specific to Palmyra <laughs> or other places, you know, a, a few things that, that uh, you know, I, I remember one day at Palmyra, there was a uh, tsunami alert. And so there was a tsunami that was heading our way. And so when the alert got out, to basically get evacuated from Palmyra takes about 24 hours because they have to fly a plane, get a, fl a flight from Honolulu, get it down. If the weather's bad, they can't land. Let's get a crew ready. You know, they can't fly at night, all this stuff. So it takes generally about 24 hours to get evacuated. So we couldn't get evacuated. And um, then it becomes this, you know, the atoll's flat. So uh, if a tsunami were to hit, there's absolutely nowhere to to go no coverage yeah so the only place what we had to do was spend the night on it was a it was like a uh, 30 foot high world war ii bunker so we had to get the whole camp climb up on ladders bring up food supply assuming that the the atoll would get you know flattened by the tsunami uh and spend the night on a world war ii bunker which was actually more dangerous than the tsunami itself which never hit um because it was just like in, in the dark <laughs> with rusty bits of metal and stuff but that World War Two yeah. bunker was 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 useful in the end for us because that was the only and it was very solidly made. So you know it was you know designed to obviously uh, withstand punishment. So that was the only place we could go to to uh, wait out the tsunami. Which 
again, with the structure, the atoll is very unlikely to form because it just is it's too flat for for a big wave to form. But you can't you can't take that risk because if it did hit, there'd be there's absolutely nowhere to go. Oh my goodness! So that was an unusual, you know, not the sort of thing you expect to be an issue when you're in the field. But um, that was just one of the things the atoll atoll threw up at us. Was this the same bunker that was sinking in the sand? No, this was a different bunker. So there's bunkers all over the atoll. So you have gun turrets along the beaches that are small because they're in the sand. And then in the jungle area or the rainforest area, you have these really big bunker buildings that were, you know, presumably the sort of inland uh, defensive uh, unit areas. And those are the ones that are that are high up. But it's it's way it's, it's in it's, you know, again, it's a bizarre because you're, you're just trekking through basically rainforest habitat to, to get to these and climb up this World War II bunker at two in the morning to, to, to hide out on the roof. That's amazing. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, I was gonna say that you have to fly there and land on a makeshift runway, which you already don't like doing, and then you have to stay in a World War II bunker with rusted out metal, hoping that a hurricane doesn't hit you. Yeah, the, the bunker bit didn't didn't bother me. The flight home d- did, and that's again, I can deal with the rest, but the the flight, so I just don't, I don't, I don't miss that part. But the rest of it, I definitely, I haven't been back since 2015, so it's been a few years, and I, I miss, I miss the atoll a lot, but. I don't miss I don't miss the flight. <laughs> That's fair. Well, thank you so much for being on here today with us. We so appreciate your time and we've learned so much about black tip and gray reef sharks. Um, where can our sharkies follow along with all of your awesome work? Well, so I have on my Twitter account, which is uh, at, at Dr. Yanis. Uh, I have my Instagram account, which I think is just Yanis. I actually can't remember. But uh Twitter's definitely at Dr. Yanis. And then also if you if you do a quick search for my uh, lab website, Predator Ecology and Conservation, um, the PEC lab at Florida International University and, and all of our work and papers will be up there as well. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Papiestamatio. We so appreciate your time and having you on here today. No, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, enjoyed talking to you. Awesome. Well, until next time. Swim you later. <laughs> hey Sharkies, thanks for listening. Don't forget to hit that rate and subscribe button. 